This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. Dump da dump 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 da dump dump Yep, another episode of Dragnet is on the way, starring Jack Webb. I'm always amazed when I remember that Jack Webb wasn't always the guy with the monotone delivery of Sergeant Joe Friday. He was an interesting guy. Uh, Webb was born in Santa Monica, California in 1920. He grew up in the Bunker Hill section of Los Angeles. His father left before Webb was born. Webb never knew him. Webb was raised in the Catholic faith of his mother, one of the tenants in his mother's boarding house was a former jazz musician who began Webb's lifelong interest in jazz by giving him a recording of Bix Beiderbex at the Jazz Band Ball. Jack Webb attended St. John's University in Minnesota, where he studied art. Following his discharge, he moved to San Francisco, where a wartime shortage of announcers led to a temporary appointment to his own radio show on ABC's KGO Radio. And this is the part of his career that always amazes me. The Jack Webb Show was a half-hour comedy that had a limited run on ABC Radio. By 1949, he'd abandoned comedy for drama and starred in Pat Novak for Hire, a radio show about a man who worked as an unlicensed private detective. Webb's personal life was better defined by his love of jazz rather than his interest in police work. He had a collection of more than 6,000 jazz recordings. In fact, Webb's own recordings reached cult status, including his deadpan delivery of Try a Little Tenderness. Gee, I'd love to track that down and give it a listen. His lifelong interest in the cornet allowed him to move easily in the jazz culture, where he met singer and actress Julie London. Oh, my gosh, she was gorgeous. Well, they married in 1947, divorced in 54, he was married three more times after that. Webb died of an apparent heart attack in the early morning hours of December 23rd, 1982, at the age, very young age, of 62. He was given a funeral with full Los Angeles police honors. And on Webb's death, Chief Daryl Gates announced that badge number 714, which was used by Joe Friday and Dragnet, would be retired. And Los Angeles Mayor Tom Bradley ordered all flags lowered the half-staff in Webb's honor for a day, and Webb was buried with the replica LAPD badge bearing the rank of sergeant and the number 714. Now, Webb has two stars on the Hollywood uh, Walk of Fame, one for radio and the other for television. In 1992, Webb was posthumously inducted into the Television Hall of Fame. And now we hear the episode of Dragnet entitled... The Brick Bat Slayer. Here's another in NBC's great parade of new shows. The 
ladies and gentlemen. The story you are about to hear is true. Only the names have been changed to protect the innocent. NBC brings you Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned to homicide. A mad killer is loose in the city. In every instance, he leaves the murder weapon behind. There are no fingerprints, no clues to the killer's identity. Your job, get him. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime, investigated and solved by the men who unrelentingly stand watch on the security of your home, your family, and your life. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department, you will travel step by step on the side of the law through an actual case from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Tuesday, June 3rd. It was warm in Los Angeles. We were working the day watch out of homicide. My partner's Ben Romero. The boss is Ed Backstrand, chief of detectives. My name's Friday. I was off duty reporting back in on an emergency call. It was 3.57 a.m. when I got to the basement of the city hall. The carpool. Let's go, Friday. Sorry to call you back in. Couldn't be helped. All right, Ben. Okay, Skipper. What's up, Ed? Double murder. When? I don't know. Found out about it, oh, 40 minutes ago. Got any ideas? Roughly same M.O. Was that 6413 Norwich, Skipper? No, 6430. What do you mean, the same M.O.? The same guy. Brickbat killer. How many does this make? Counting tonight, four. We got anything at all? Uh, smudged fingerprint we can't even classify. Sounds like a smart operator. We gotta get him. We have to shake down the city from one end to the other. Big job, Skipper. Big killer. At 4.26 a.m., we pulled up in front of 6430 Norwich Drive, a small group of bungalow apartments facing on an oval-shaped garden court. Two uniformed officers were stationed at the door to the apartment. Hiya, Chief. Hiya, fellas. We went inside. Welbert from Homicide was waiting for us. This way. In here. Well, there they are. Yeah. Mother, daughter. Joe, on the floor beside the bed. Yeah, a red brick. Miss Hafters, we know how you must feel about all this, but would you please try to answer a few more questions for us? Yeah. All right. Oh, Margaret. Miss Hafters, how long had you known Mrs. Diaz and her daughter? Nine years. This November, they moved next door. I remember it so well. We got along right from the start. And as far as you know, the only close friends the mother and daughter had live right here in the apartment court? Yes. Margaret was a pretty girl, but she was no chaser, no boyfriends. Very close to her mother. The two of them, very close. Did they keep any amount of valuables in the apartment? Money, jewelry, things like that? Oh, no. Mrs. Diaz and Margaret didn't have much, you know. Very modest income. They both work. And you can think of no good reason. Oh, no, no. Oh, 
Poor Margaret, poor Mrs. Diaz, lying in there. The shock's a terrible shock. Wellberg. Yes, Sergeant. Would you show Mrs. Hafters back to her apartment? Sure, Sergeant. Thank you, Mrs. Hafters. We appreciate it. Yes, thank you. Poor Margaret. Poor Mrs. Diaz. Well, Joe, let's check with Ed. He's back in the bedroom. You get anything from the neighbors? The usual, Ed. No jealous boyfriends, ex-husbands, nothing like that. Boys find any evidence yet, Skipper? I'm still working on it. You got any theories? Well, we know the killings were all done by the same guy. Mm-hmm. Cuts the same pattern out of the window screen. Cuts the same pattern with a glass cutter out of the window. Reaches in and flips the lock. All right, where's that leaving? And before he gets inside, he makes sure there are only women in the house. That means he probably watches the house for a few days. Yeah. Once he gets inside, he wants only one thing, to kill. He's never taken any valuables. As far as we can tell, he's never searched for any. What kind of a man works like that? I think the guy's kill crazy. Hey, fellas. Yes, Donner? Here's a break. Two fair prints. One thumb, one forefinger. What'd you get, Pete? Only got nine points. Not enough to go into court, but enough to make him. We'll know him when we get him. Yeah. Found the prints on the lens of the old lady's eyeglasses. Probably knocked him off the night table when he went after her. And when he was done, he put him back on the table. Yeah. Had blood on his hands, see? Yeah. That's funny, isn't it? Why would he go to the trouble of picking up the woman's glasses after he killed her? We'll ask him when we find him. Hi, Ben. Joe. Might have something for you. We can use it, Lee. Hold it just a minute. Yeah. Crime lab, Jones. Yeah. Yeah, all right. I'll tell him. Right, Ed. Backstrand. If you're through checking the victim's clothes by 8 o'clock, you can knock off for sleep until noon. What if we're not through? Take it up with the chaplain. Here's what I wanted to show you. Over here. A couple of casts. Barefoot plane. That's right. Those from the Diaz place? Found them outside the dining room window in the flower bed. Take a look. Mm-hmm. Good cast. Size 9. 10. Uh, missing toe there, huh? Left foot, first toe. That's lucky. One of the guy took his shoes off before he went in that house. That's the way it looks. You leave any other prints, Lee? Three, with his shoes on. Here they are, here. Yeah. How would you say the guy is built, Lee? Oh, from the impression, pretty heavy man. There's no full length of stride, or I might give you an idea of his height. How about the bricks, Lee? Here they are, all three of them. Used this one in the first murder, this one in the second, this one last night. Leaves them around like calling cards, and there's no way to check them. You never get a fingerprint off a common red brick like this, Ben. Surface is too rough. Well, we got an idea of his weight. We know that the first toe's missing from his left foot. That's something. The one we had yesterday. We can check that missing toe in the amputation file, Joe. Yeah. Well, we better get back. Pete ought to have those prints ready, too. Thanks a lot, Lee. Okay, fellas. Say, they post the bodies yet? Yeah, they're doing it now. Same as the first two. The brain? Concussion, hemorrhage. They didn't have a chance. Hold it a minute. Time lap, Jones. Sure, just a minute. Either one of you fellas. I'll get it, Joe. Okay. Yeah, Romero. Yeah. Good, we'll be right over. They got a make on those two fingerprints. Okay, Joe. Single print file. Made him on the index finger. Let me see, Pete. Uh-huh. Take a look, Ben. Yeah. Doesn't look like a killer, does he, Joe? Kind of nice looking. That's right, Pete. They said the same thing about John Dillinger. 
The name at the top of the makesheet read Carlos Richard Monterey, male, Caucasian, age 19, height 5 feet 11 inches, weight 165 pounds, dark brown hair, dark brown eyes. Last known address, 1663 Naples Street, Los Angeles. Previous arrests, one, auto theft, February 8, 1936. That was all. Ben and I had been expecting more. The information on the mama sheet for Monterey was 13 years old. So was the picture. So was the description. So was the address. In 13 years, a man can change in a thousand ways. So can his habits, his appearance, his address. In 13 years, everything can change except two things. A man's fingerprints and a physical deformity. Richard Monterey. Here it is, Joe. 1663 Naples. Yeah, come on. Somebody's coming. Mm-hmm. Yes? What is it? We're police officers. We'd like to ask you a few questions. Oh, yes. Um, would you like to come in? Thank you, ma'am. Yes? Would you mind telling us your name? Monterey. Isabel Monterey. What is it you want? You're married? Yes. My husband is Francisco Monterey. Would you explain why you are here? We thought you might be able to help us. We're looking for a man named Carlos Monterey. I... Don't understand you. We're looking for a man. We'd like to talk to him. Do you know where he is? Yes. Carlos is dead seven years ago. He's dead. My husband told me. Does your husband know Carlos, or did he know him? He was his brother. What about your husband's parents, Miss Monterey? Where are they? They're both dead. Sometime now. Have you ever met Carlos? No, never. I've only heard of him. What have you heard of him, Miss Monterey? Do not ask me. This is important, very important. Francisco would not like it if I told you. It's important, Miss Monterey, believe us. Carlos, he's sick. His mind. For eight years, Francisco has not seen him, not heard from him. He thinks he's dead. But he only thinks so, Miss Monterey. No one's told him his brother's dead. He just thinks so. What else is there to think? Where's your husband now? At his work, his store, Rivera Street near Maine. Grocery. Monterey Carroll Grocery. <laughs> Here's your change. Thank you, Mrs. Myers. Now, look, officers, you know how it is. You don't like to let these things get out. That's why I trust you. You can trust us, Mr. Monterey. We just want to check on a few things. Oh, fine. Always glad to help out if I can. Well, can you tell us if your brother was ever in a mental institution in his life? Oh, I know. There was nothing wrong. 1923. Got a little bad, so Mom and Dad had to put him away for a while. Just till he calmed down. I remember the day. Sometimes. Dumb, stupid kid. What do he know? Standing there by himself in the train, crying. Public nurse. Stupid way he cried. What do you do? I cried too. I was only 10, Sergeant. I, I saw him go. He was alone. Later on, Mr. Monterey, your brother was released from the state institution. Yeah, he was 16. And then he started running around, playing tough, carried a gun, lived by himself. He never came around. He dropped from sight about 1938. You haven't heard from him since then? Nothing. 
Never seen him. Do you know of anybody who might have seen him? Ooh, there was a girl he had. Uh, Anita something. On Soteo Street. Uh, Anita Martin, yeah, that's it. Soteo Street. Maybe she's seen him. Ask her. Maybe she's seen him. Carlos? Carlos Monterey? Uh, not in a year. Last March he was in. When I was working at the Peacock, down on South Main. He came in, we talked for a while. That was all. And you haven't seen Carlos for the past two months or so? I tell you, no. Has he written to you? Has he phoned you? Mm. Once, three weeks ago, he phoned. Here. He left a message with my girlfriend. But he didn't call back again. Now, that's it. That's all I know. Thank you, Miss Martin. Here's our card. If he does call, well, you'll let us know? Yeah, I'll let you know. You like Carlos. Is that it, Anita? Like him? No, I didn't like him. He was funny. But he was nice. You know, I pitied him. Why did you pity him, Miss Martin? Well, he was a good fellow who was strange. He could smile, you know. He had a nice smile, but and you could tell he was never laughing. There was something in his mind. Something. Oh, I don't know. At least a year, closer to two, I haven't seen Carlos. No letters, not a card, nothing. He was in the East the last time I heard. When was that? A year ago, January. I was in here. He sent me a calendar. Sometimes he could get along fine, very well. Other times, terrible. I couldn't keep him down. How did he manage to stay out of jail that way, Vicente? I don't know. Sometimes he should have been in jail five times over. You say you don't know of anybody who might have a recent picture of Carlos, a snapshot? No. No, no one I can think of. Okay, Vincent, here's our card. If you do think of somebody, let us know, will you? It'll help. Sure, glad to. If I hear of anybody. What kind of a day is it outside? Hot? Hot. By five o'clock that afternoon, Ben and I were certain of one thing. Carlos Monterey was in the city of Los Angeles, somewhere. We drove back to the office and told Ed Backstrand about our interviews with Monterey's relatives and his friends. Inquiries and requests for further identification and information on him were immediately relayed to the state mental institutions. The 13-year-old picture of Monterey taken from the files was copied and distributed with a note of caution as to the age of the photograph. An APB was sent out. Stakeouts were placed at the home of Monterey's brother, at the brother's store, and at the apartment of Anita Martin. A special detail of 300 men was ordered to join the dragnet already in operation. The details at the airport and the bus terminals were alerted, as well as the details at the Union Depot and the main post office. By 6 o'clock that night, almost 1,000 men were actively working at the job of tracking down Carlos Monterey. At 6.30 p.m., Ben and I drew a four-hour relief period. We drove out to Ben's place, and his wife fixed us some dinner. At 10.30 that night, we reported into the office, picked up Ed Backstrand, and we drove out to join the manhunt. Unit 32R on the corner of South Flower and Loomis on 390W, KMA 367. Unit 12A, code 1. 66A at 864 Wall Street. See the man about a 507, KMA 367. Unit 425430 East Grand, apartment 10, 311, KMA 367. We cruised with the dragnet operation until 5 o'clock that morning. Ben and I took turns driving. Actually, the tremendous job of scouring 500 square miles of city for one man was only beginning. 
Unless there was an unexpected break, the search for Carlos Monterey could wear on for weeks. It did. Night after night, the manhunt went on, and day after day, there was no break. Sixteen days later, on a Sunday night, I went to bed early. I read a while, and then I turned off the lamp and went to sleep. Hello? It's Righty talking. Sorry, Joe. Get in here as fast as you can. Hmm? What's the matter? That girl Monterey knew. The one you talked to? Yeah. She left her apartment, went to her girlfriend's. Yeah? She's dead. There it is. Ordinary red brick. Found it by the body. How long has she been dead, Skipper? Well, she was seen alive about an hour and a half ago. Got three bare footprints. Good length of stride. Found them down in the lot beside the house. What do they look like? Same guy. First toe missing from the left foot. The same weight impression. Should be about five foot eleven. That checks out without you got, doesn't it? All right, so it's the same guy. What about those shoes we found, Lee? Yeah, they correspond. They were impregnated with foreign matter. What'd you find? Particles of lettuce leaf, dry onion skin, traces of red cabbage. Maybe a vegetable counter. Maybe. What about the city wholesale market down on Front Street? What about any market in Los Angeles? No, Lee, that wholesale market is big enough to hide anybody. Hundreds of transients work in there. Some of them even sleep there. For a guy like Monterey, it'd be perfect. That's a fair guess. Check it when it opens. They open at 2 a.m. 2.30 now. All right, get back to the office and pick up as many extra men as you need. Get down there right away. Okay, Ed. Now, you know he's a rough one, so watch it. On Monday, June 23rd, at two minutes past 3 a.m., we pulled up at the city wholesale produce market. With the exception of 54 police officers in plain clothes who mingled with the buyers and sellers, business went along as usual. The market itself covered almost three square blocks in the lower part of the downtown area. It was divided off into hundreds of individual stalls by flimsy wooden partitions. To make the search even tougher, the place was crowded. For the first 45 minutes, we had the men circulate at random through the crowd on the chance that one of them might spot Carlos Monterey from the 13-year-old picture. It didn't happen. After that, we started a systematic canvas. We talked to the customers. We talked to the managers of the different booths. We gave them Monterey's description. We showed them his picture. Nobody recognized him. We checked the employment records one by one. Not a sign. Sorry, Sergeant. Like to help. I've never seen the guy. Okay, Mr. Snyder. Thank you. We sure picked the sweet jobs, don't we? Oh, yeah. We could spend a year at this. Oh, Sergeant. Sergeant Friday. Yeah, Kamansky. Did you find something? The guy at the booth over there against the far wall. Thinks he might have hired Monterey a couple of days ago. Come on, Ben. Where? Over there, Sergeant. You showing Monterey's picture? Yeah, he thinks it might be him. Mr. Fresnetti, this is Sergeant Romero, Sergeant Friday. Yes, I told you, boy, Sergeant. This fellow Carlos, I hired him to help uh, last Thursday. Big rush for me now, so I hired him. You sure he's the man? In the picture? I think so. A little older, maybe. Oh, but I know faces. He's the man. You, you're looking for him? You say you hired this man last Thursday. That's right. It's a big rush for me now in the morning. I, I hired him Thursday. He worked uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. But he don't show up this morning, so I got no use. Too many men to pick from. He don't show up, I let him go. What kind of work did he do for you? Same as he did for Schiller down there. Heavy work. Moving the stores, they're cleaning up. What kind of produce does Schiller handle, Mr. Franzinetti? Fancy, very fancy vegetables. Choice. No potatoes, expensive red onions. Schiller sells to the big hotels. Does Schiller handle brown onions, Mr. Franzinetti? Oh, only the best. Big dealer that Schiller. Sells it to the big hotels. How long has this Carlos been working around the market? Oh, I don't know. Is it just like the rest? 
First he worked for me, then uh, Largo Massini, then a Schiller. Hey, why are you looking so hard for him? He, he stole something? He murdered somebody. Him? Mamma mia, murder. Do you have any idea where Carlos lived? Well, me? No, no. And if he comes back here, I tell him to get out. I got nothing to do with this trouble. No, you'll tell him nothing, Mr. Fasanetti. Here's our card. If you see Monterey again, call us. Say nothing to him. Well, sure, sure. I'd read him. Uh, Joe, call the chief at the office, will you? Message just came in. Thanks, Al. Come on, Ben. Yeah, there's a phone booth. See? No, I don't. Where? Straight ahead, little to the left. Oh, yeah. You got a nickel? Let's see. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there you are. Thanks. I'll see what Ed wants. Two five one one. Two five one one. Chief detectives always had him. Hi, Mike. Ed there. Ed, take it on extension two, will you? Backstrand talking. Friday, Ed. Move fast on this one, Joe. What's up? Main post office. Carlos Monterey picked up a letter there less than five minutes ago. <laughs> Come on, Ben. There's Ed over there with Welberg. Yeah. Traffic short jammed up around here. Hi, Ed. Friday, Romero. You all set, Welberg? All set, Chief. Spring Street to San Pedro. Sunset the first. Got it covered. Good. What's the story? Post office detail tipped us off. Five minutes after eight, a man answering Carlos Monterey's description picked up a letter at the general delivery window. That was 16 minutes ago. Who spotted him? Sam Lane. Got a look at him just as he was leaving the window. Called to him to stop, but Monterey ran. Lane called me, and we threw a net over the area for six blocks around. And Monterey's still somewhere inside this area? I don't know how he could have gotten out. What's next? Well, I'll give him an hour to break for it. After that, we start a house-to-house search of the whole area. Stop all pedestrian and vehicular traffic for identification. You're going to jam up the depot traffic. That's cheaper than murder, Romero. Get going. The first hour, we counted off in five-minute segments. Like Backstrand, we felt close enough to Monterey to touch him. But he still wasn't there. The north and south ends of the blockade started to move in, slowly, searching every store, every house, every conceivable place where a man might hide out. In the meantime, Ben and I worked the Spring Street side of the blockade, watching the faces of the pedestrians as they came through, one by one, examining all vehicles and their drivers. The morning wore on, the sun came out, and it started to get warm. By 11 o'clock that morning, Monterey still had not been found. The temperature was 93 in Los Angeles. It was still climbing. The search went on. At ten minutes past 2 p.m., Backstrand made the rounds. How's it look, Skipper? Not good. Going slow. How much longer you figure? I don't know. It'll go to after dark, that's sure. District down here is like a rat's nest. Yeah. Nothing? Nothing. But he's someplace inside this blockade. He's got to be. Any chance getting relief for the men in our squad? Some of them been working straight through since yesterday. Uh, I'll see. Check with me around five this afternoon. Thank you, Skipper. Keep a sharp lookout. One slip. That's all it takes. The search went on. At three o'clock that afternoon, the temperature was 95. We sweltered and we waited. At 3.45, Backstrand sent a squad of men into the Union Depot to search it from top to bottom. There was one false alarm when one of the men thought he saw Monterey slipping out a side door into a taxi. He turned out to be a train conductor. At 25 minutes past four, Backstrand passed along the order to our detail to start moving in, house by house. It was a tedious job, and it went slow. The men were tired. At 5.30, the relief squad showed up. Ben and I stayed on. 
After another two hours of house-to-house searching, the trap was narrowed down to a three-square-block area, a single block wide and three blocks long. It started to get dark. Backstrand ordered out batteries of floodlights. By 8 p.m., the cordon closed in around the last two square blocks. Lines for all set, Skipper. Ready to move. Good. What do you think? Well, we'll know pretty soon, one way or the other. Frank, keep that traffic moving. All right, you two, get going. See you later, Skipper. Joe, let's take a look in here. Okay. Sure is an old building. Yeah. Where'd Kamansky go? No, no, he's here a minute ago. Oh, wait, there's his flashlight. Down the end of the corridor there, he's signaling. Yeah, come on. Kamansky? Yeah. Down below, Sergeant, in the basement. Come on. Monterey? He's been there, I think. Yeah, this way. Where? Over here. Now, watch the step. The light's bad. Here he is. Says he's a janitor. Oh, my head. He's been slugged. All right, come on. How'd it happen? Can you tell us? Yeah, a man, a big man, hit me. I came down to empty the baskets. He hit me and ran. Ran over to the new building. The new building? Is that the one next door? Yeah, just a few minutes ago. Nobody's come out of this building for the past half hour. Every door in the place is guarded. No, no, not the doors. He went through the tunnel. I saw him. Over there's the tunnel. I'll take a look, Joe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the tunnel. Next to two basements. Same company, old building, new building. The tunnel connects the basements. Joe, come on. Yeah. Kamansky, get out the back strand. Tell him what's happened. Right, Sergeant. And call an ambulance. Right. All right, Ben. Through the tunnel. Watch where you're going. The light's bad. Yeah, it is. That a door up ahead there? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Let's go. Good. There's a stairway. Come on. Watch the doors. Joe, the elevator. They're both on the third floor. Let's head for the stairs. Ben, come on. One more floor. Yeah, right. Come on, hurry. Yeah. Look, top of the stairs. There he goes. All right, hold it, you. Ducked in the elevator. Joey's going down. Well, we'll never make it on the stairs. Joe, look. There's other elevator. The control lever's bent. Let's try it anyway. Yeah. All right, kick the control lever. Kick it, Ben. Good. All right, Ben, knock the lever back. Come on, quick. Yep. What's the matter? The door's jammed. We're going fast. All right, let's kick it. Here. Yeah, that does it. Can you reach the door control? Wait just a minute. I'll see. Yeah. Okay. Well, he's still in the building. Both elevators are here now. Yeah. Down the hall, Ben. The office on the left, I think. Yeah. Okay, here we are. All right, keep clear of the door. All right, Monterey, put on that gun and come on out. I'll kill you! I'll kill all of you! All of you! Okay, Joe, let's take it. Watch it, Ben. He's throwing everything he can get his hands on. I'll kill you! Come on! Come on! I'll kill you! Get away! I'll kill all of you! All right, Monterey. Come on, you! Okay, Ben, take him. Yep. Yeah. Oh. Nice looking guy. Clean cut. Yeah. Doesn't figure, does it? What's that? My wife would say he doesn't look like a killer, does he? What's a killer supposed to look like? The story you have just heard is cruel. 
Only the names were changed to protect the innocent. Carlos Monterey was examined by five different psychiatrists appointed by the Superior Court and was found to be sane. He was tried and convicted of murder in the first degree. He was executed in the lethal gas chamber at the state penitentiary. You have just heard the 17th in a new series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice for Dragnet comes from the office of W.A. Wharton, acting chief of police, Los Angeles Police Department. Tonight's program is dedicated to motorcycle patrolman John Kramer of the El Paso, Texas Sheriff's Department, who on the afternoon of April 26, 1940, gave his life so that yours might be more secure. Dragnet came to you from Los Angeles. You're tuned for the stars on NBC. Stay tuned for Our Miss Brooks next on Theater of the Mind. Time now for Our Miss Brooks. I love this show. All the characters are so well drawn and acted, from Eve Arden to Gail Gordon's portrayal of Principal Osgood Conklin to Walter Denton and all the rest. Enjoy the story of The Weighing Machine. I'm Ollie Soap, your beauty hope and luster cream shampoo for soft, glamorous dream girl hair bring you Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden. Our Miss Brooks teaches English at Madison High School. And although, like most of our teachers, she possesses a higher-than-average intelligence, she also possesses the higher-than-average curiosity of most of our women, especially when it comes to weighing machines. There's nobody more concerned about the result than a female who has just deposited her penny in the slot. Unless it's the male tub of lard who was on the scale when I got there. (laughs) This happened last Wednesday after school. I was passing the drugstore and just happened to have a penny on me. Tuesday was payday. (laughs) So I approached the weighing machine, and like I said, this brewery horse was stomping on the springs. And when he saw his weight on the little card, he looked around the drugstore, then made tracks for a sign saying, Girdle Department. I calmly stepped aboard, and when my card came out, I glanced casually at my weight, chuckled as if to say, how much accuracy can you expect for a cent? (laughs) And was just about to throw the card away when I noticed my fortune printed on the back. It said... A tall, dark man is coming into your life. Then, of course, I did drop the card. It landed in my purse, and I proceeded on home. (laughs) By the next morning, I'd forgotten about it completely. As usual, I'd left word for Mrs. Davis, my landlady, to wake me at 7.30. Connie. Oh, Connie. Oh, what is it? Better hurry, Connie. You've only got 20 minutes. 20 minutes? What time is it? 7.10, and you've only got 20 minutes to sleep. Oh, fine. (laughs) Well, come on in, Mrs. Davis. Did you have a good night, Connie? I said, did you have a good night? Good night, Mrs. Davis. (laughs) You better get up now, Connie. Here, I've brought you some fruit juice. Go on, Connie, take a sip. Oh, what kind of juice is this? It's a combination. Pineapple, papaya, and passion fruit. (laughs) It's a genuine Hawaiian recipe. What do you stir it with, a ukulele? (laughs) After you drink it, we'll have a nice... Why, Connie, what's that little white card? What little white card? This one here on your night table. Let's see. uh, A tall, dark man is coming into your life. 
Now, who do you suppose that could be? Well, it's not Sonny Tuft. He's a blonde. <laughs> Maybe they mean Mr. Philip Boynton. The bashful biologist? No, Mrs. Davis. So far, he's managed to remain in the suburbs of my life. <laughs> well, of course, I don't believe in fortunes on cards and crystal gazing and palm reading and all that nonsense. There is, however, a logical and scientific way to arrive at certain conclusions about one's personal destiny. What's that, Mrs. Davis? Tea leaves. <laughs> now, you hurry and get dressed, and I'll brew the tea. After breakfast, I'll do your reading. All right, Mrs. Davis. Oh, just a minute. What is it, Tony? Before I get out of bed, you better take that tall, dark man off my night table. <laughs> With your tea, Connie. Yes, Mrs. Davis. Mm, let's see now. Where are the leaves? Well, most of them are in my teeth. <laughs> <laughs> Here we are. There's plenty left for a reading. First, we revolve the cup three times slowly between our hands, then quickly turn it over onto the saucer. There. Well, what do you know? The weight card was right. What? There he is, right there in the cup. The tall, dark man who's coming into your life. Don't tell me you can't see him. Oh, of course. For a minute, I didn't recognize him with all those tea leaves on. <laughs> this is an amazing coincidence, Connie. I'd like to get another reading, if you don't mind. Oh, not at all, Mrs. Davis. It's always nice to be sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, what do you know about that? I know, he's gone. Left town without even saying goodbye. <laughs> Be serious. This is an amazing thing I see in this cup. What now, Mrs. Davis? Uh, I don't think I should tell you. Why not? Because you're not even married yet. Oh, but I'm a big girl now. <laughs> I'll have to find out sooner or later. I never would have believed it. Three of them. Three tall, dark men? No, Constance. Three little ones. Three little dark men? <laughs> Children. You're going to have three children. Well, don't look so shocked, Mrs. Davis. Maybe they're his by a former marriage. <laughs> no, no, Connie, they're yours. But how can you keep your job at school if you've got to take care of... Oh, I know. I'll get Mrs. Fletcher. When my niece first, I had the twins. <laughs> Mrs. Fletcher took over completely. Oh, now, just a minute, Mrs. Davis. Don't you now, quiet, little... Connie. You can't prepare. <laughs> you can't prepare too soon for this sort of thing. Now, where did I put Mrs. Fletcher's phone number? I better call... I don't want Mrs. Fletcher. I'll take care of my kids myself. <laughs> yes, that's the way you want to After all, I'm only trying to be helpful. Oh, I'm sorry, Mrs. Davis. This tea leaves business is pretty fascinating. But I better get ready. Walter Denton's giving me a list of school again. Oh, is your car under repair shot, Connie? Yes, it is. What's wrong with it this time? Well, I can't be sure, but I think that Joe the mechanic and my car are that way about each other. <laughs> Time I try to separate them, the car blows a gasket. <laughs> oh, there's Walter now. I'll be right with you, Walter. Oh, before you go, Connie, please do me one favor. Certainly. What is it? Promise me you'll be very careful today. Careful? Oh, you mean about my fortune. Mrs. Davis, I give you my word of honor. I'll let you know in plenty of time to call Mrs. Fletcher. <laughs> Walter, it's very nice of you to keep driving me to school like this. Oh, that's all right, Miss Brooks. I don't like to take advantage of the fact that because your car is incapacitated and I can jump into the breach now and then, transportation-wise, that is, you 
can't very well refuse gracefully, but I'm telling you, you can before I even ask you. That's square enough, isn't it? Square as things in Clyde McCoy. <laughs> but being an English teacher, I practically understand you, Walter. Just what kind of advice do you need this morning? Oh, it's a girl. What's a girl? Harriet Conklin. Why, Walter Denton, you've been wearing your glasses again. <laughs> what about Harriet? I'm afraid it's a pretty long story. That's all right. I have a pretty long ear. <laughs> well, as you know, Miss Brooks, Harriet Conklin is the daughter of Mr. Conklin. Granted. Who, in turn, is married to Harriet's mother, Mrs. Conklin. It all started the night before last. See, I told you it was a long story. Only the way you tell it. Go ahead. <laughs> well, the night before last, I had a date with Harriet to go to the movies. When I got to her house to pick her up, she acted like I had bubonic plague or something. Did you? I mean, <laughs> what did she do? Well, she said that she couldn't be bothered with me anymore because a tall, dark man was coming into her life. Her too? <laughs> Must be an epidemic. Where did she find out about this tall, dark man? Well, that's where mother comes in. Maybe there's a shorter way to listen to this story. <laughs> her mother and Harriet had taken out the Ouija board that afternoon. That's when they found out about this tall guy. Well, after all, Walter, you can't compete with a non-existent rival. That's just the trouble. He's not non-existent. He's not? No, he materialized yesterday. Oh, now, Walter, please. No, it's I... true, Miss Brooks. Harriet told me all about him when I called yesterday evening, although I wasn't going to after the way she treated me the evening before. But when I did, she told me that this tall, dark French teacher had checked in at their house to give her father his papers before he began teaching French at school today. I know you're telling me something because I can see your lips moving. <laughs> what is it, Walter? Well, don't you understand, Miss Brooks? It's called an exchange deal. This teacher came over from Paris, France. What did we send them? Two outfielders and a shortstop? <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but I do know that Harriet sounded like this French teacher was a combination of Maurice Chevrolet and... and... I know. Maurice Chevrolet and Charles Buick. <laughs> going to say Charles Boyer. <laughs> That's what I was afraid you were going to say. This teacher must be quite an interesting personality. What's his name? Let's see now. Well, there's an article about him in the school paper. Oh, I know. It's Manette. Jackwee's Manette. <laughs> Jackwee's Manette? <laughs> oh, you mean Jacques Monet. Say, that is a romantic-sounding name, all right. I'll bet he's a very nice person. Oh, it's not him I'm worried about. It's Harriet. Since he showed up, she thinks the Ouija board is infallible. The Ouija board? Oh, that's ridiculous. Harriet's much too sensible to... Why, I'm surprised at her. Next thing you know, she'll be having her tea leaves read. Three children? <laughs> Thanks, Walter, and don't worry too much about losing Harriet's affections. I'm sure the French teacher is just a passing phase in her life. Hey, there's Harriet on the steps. I'll go find a place to park. See you later, Miss Brooks. All right, Walter. Hello there, Harriet. What? Oh, hello, Miss Brooks. You'll have to forgive me if I seem to be in a reverie. But I've heard about your Ouija board. I don't care what anybody says, Miss Brooks. There must be something to it. Imagine the very next day, 
It's the first time I've ever seen capital letters in conversation. <laughs> he must be quite attractive. Attractive isn't the word, Miss Brooks. No? What is the word? Heavenly. Super heavenly. Stratospherically heavenly. <laughs> oh, please, Harriet. I'll come up a little if you will come down a little. <laughs> oh, wait till you see him, Miss Brooks. He's... He's... Just safety belt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Look, Harriet, I think it's all very natural for a schoolgirl to have crutches. I had them myself. You, Miss Brooks? Yes, me, Miss Brooks. I wasn't born an English teacher, you know. I also think it's perfectly normal for a girl your age to think like a schoolgirl in other ways. But I do say this, and I mean it sincerely, Harriet. You don't have to act like a schoolgirl. But anyway, but you are the principal's daughter, Harriet, no? May we, Monsieur Monet, may we? <laughs> oh, this is Miss Brooks. Miss Brooks, je suis enchanté. That is, I've heard so much about you. But it is, uh, how do you say, understatement. You're so useful, so lovely. Why, you're like a pupil, not a teacher. Run along, Harriet. You'll be late to school. <laughs> but we're at school. Oh? When did that get here? Something is wrong. Wrong? Oh, I should say not, Monsieur Monet. It's just that, well, we don't meet such distinguished visitors every day, and, well, they must have given at least three outfielders and two short stuff for him. Pardon? Oh, uh, it's just a figure of speech. Oh. And a lovely figure you have, too. Oh, this is a doll. <laughs> Shall we go into the school, Monsieur Monet? Uh, oui, yes. I have to stop at Monsieur Conklin's office. You, uh, you show me where it is, huh? No? I, I show you where is it, uh, yes. <laughs> and I hope Mr. Boynton sees us together. I'll direct Monsieur Monet to Daddy's office, Miss Brooks. Oh, you won't have time, Harriet. You have to freshen up before your class. Enough. But I just stepped out of the shower. Then give yourself a rub down. You'll catch cold. <laughs> this way, monsieur. Come in. Well, it's our new French teacher. Good morning, monsieur Manet. Bonjour, monsieur Conklin. Uh, excuse me, I mean good morning. Hi, Daddy. Hello, Harriet. Uh, Mr. Conklin, I just came in to volunteer my assistance if you're looking for somebody to show Mr. Monet around the school. I told Miss Brooks that I'd be glad to take Mr. Monet, Daddy. Of course, I'd need your permission to cut one of my classes. Maybe English. I'm pretty well advanced in that. Me too. Maybe we both could cut it. <laughs> please. Please, I would not want either of you to, uh, how do you say, put out your sails. Oh, it would be silly to put out ourselves now. After all, we just started to blaze. <laughs> I'm sure I'll be able to show Mr. Monet the rope. But, Daddy, you're too busy. Oh, much too busy, Daddy. I mean... <laughs> Mr. Conklin, I have a study period coming up in which I don't I have want to hear any more about it. Sure, Mr. Monet wouldn't want us to feel that because of him, our entire system was disrupted. Oh, certainly not. I can find my, my own way about the premises. I'm sure that... Well, in that case, come along, Harriet. You're in my first class, you know. Oh, one moment, Miss Wolf. 
Would you do me the great honor of perhaps having lunch avec, uh, with me? With pleasure. <laughs> oh, but I did have a date with Mr. Boynton. Hmm, I think I'll keep that date, too. Maybe it'll open his eyes a little. Uh, I'll see you in the cafeteria, Mr. Monet. But I thought Mr. Monet was going to have lunch with us. Didn't you tell me you were going to invite him to the house, Daddy? Invite him? Uh, well, I suppose so. Uh, thank you, just the same, Monsieur, but I would rather not leave the school proper during my first day. Ah, an admirable spirit, Monet. If more of our homegrown teachers had it, Madison High School would be a better place in which to learn something. Something like English, for example. <laughs> yes, well, as the little boy in the fisk ad says, it's time to retire. <laughs> Hello, Mr. Boynton. Oh, it's you, Miss Brooks. Uh, how are you today? Fine, thanks. I'm glad I caught you before your class got in. I, I wanted to ask you about lunch. Oh, I'll be happy to join you. Thanks very much. Oh. <laughs> well, I had other plans, but how can I resist an invitation like that? By the way, Mr. Boynton, do you speak any foreign language? Just American. Why, <laughs> <laughs> right, Mr. Boynton, you're getting quite a sense of humor. Must catch it from your frog. <laughs> really, though, do you speak French, for instance? No, I don't. Then you wouldn't know what a French person would be saying to me if he said it in French, would you? No, I wouldn't. Good. <laughs> this may be a very interesting lunch for all of us. All of us? Yes, you see, there's a new teacher in school. Oh, you, you mean Jacques Monet? You've met him? Oh, yes. I had to deliver some papers to Mr. Conklin's home yesterday, and he was there. Oh, he's a prince of a chap. We had quite a time together. Nice to see him again at lunch. Oh, it will. Oh, yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, you'll uh, have to apologize to him for me. I'm afraid I'll be a little late. Oh, you will? That's too bad, Mr. Boynton. Why will you be late? Well, it's McDougal here. You know, my bullfrog. He's got me worried, Miss Brooks. It's his throat. He can't seem to croak above a whisper. Oh, that's too bad. Poor McDougal. Hi, Max. <laughs> He must have gargled. <laughs> it sounds pretty good. No, I'll still have to stay close to him to see how the medication I'm giving him catches on. I'll get to lunch as soon as I can, though. Ah, oh, good old Jacques Monet. He's a real man's man. You've been wrong before, Brother Boynton, but never like this. <laughs> a nice table, Mr. Monet. Let's sit down. Oui. Uh, yes, Miss Wolf. This is certainly a big restaurant. It's a cafeteria, Mr. Monet. Uh, yes. Uh, now then, shall we look at the carte du jour, bill of fare? Bill of fare? Mm -hmm. Oh, you mean menu. They don't have any menus here, Mr. Monet. No? Then how do you select an order? Well, here you don't exactly select an order. You just sort of point and holler. <laughs> I'll show you in a minute. But first, I'd like to ask a little favor, Mr. Monet. As you know, Mr. Boynton is joining us for lunch. Oh, yes. Yes, fine fellow, Mr. Boynton. A real uh, man's man. On him, it fits. <laughs> I mean, he is a very nice man, but he's sort of shy. Shy? Mm -hmm. Why should he be shy? He is tall, muscular, with a fine head of hair, good teeth, pleasing manner. What else is new? <laughs> what I wanted to ask of you is very simple. You see, Mr. Boynton is too bashful to ask you himself, but I'm sure he'd get a tremendous kick. That is, he'd enjoy it if you spoke nothing but French during our lunch. But why? 
Well, he's trying to learn how to speak your language. He understands it fine, but he's not sure of his pronunciation. He could learn a lot from you about a lot of things. <laughs> well, I suppose I could help him. He's coming over now, Mr. Manet. Uh, remember how you kissed my hand this morning? Uh, Would you do it again, please? What? Uh, but uh, Quickly, I... Mr. Manet. It's part of Mr. Boynton's education. Hurry, in my hand. Uh, Miss Brooks, I don't like to be, how do you say, gouchy, but you're pushing out one of my feelings. <laughs> What's the trouble, Mr. Monet? Got something caught in your teeth? Just an old cuticle of mine. <laughs> Sit down, Mr. Boynton. Almost have hours your tweet, monsieur. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, how do you like our cafeteria? C'est bon. Mr. Monet says it's lovely, but not half as lovely as I am. Why, Mr. Monet, how flattering. <laughs> Let's see now. What do we eat today? Well, uh, how about the roast beef? That's what I'm going to have. Me too. How about you, Mr. Monet? Tell him in French. Je désire un petit mamie, ou vichyssoise, une salade et un tranche de roast beef, des haricots verts, des crêpes suzettes et une demi-tasse. Oh, Mr. Monet, you and your compliments. <laughs> oh, now stop that and tell Mr. Boynton what you want to eat. But I do not understand. I, uh, uh, Mr. Monet, um, uh, quel voulez-vous manger? You little spy, you can speak French. Uh, well, no, I can't, Miss Brooks. Not really. Those are just a few words I picked up when I was in the Army. The Army? You were stationed in New Orleans, and you know it. But near the French Quarter. <laughs> well, uh, let us not delay any longer. I don't suppose they have what I really want for lunch, but maybe, eh? Do they ever have fog's legs? What? Oh, don't say it, <laughs> Mr. Monet. <laughs> well, uh, why not? Frog's legs are delicious to eat. Let's all have them, huh? Me? Eat frog's legs? What? I'd feel like a... like a cannibal. If you'll excuse me, I, I'm afraid I've lost my appetite. I, I'll see you later, Miss Brooks. Why, uh, Why would he feel like a cannibal if he ate frog's legs? He is not a frog. <laughs> Only in some ways is he not a frog, Mr. Monet. But don't worry about Mr. Boynton now. Oh, yes, you're right. You're right, Miss Brooks. You know, in a way, in a way, I'm glad we're alone. There is something I would like to ask you. You see, I, I have been searching for just the right one ever since I come to America. Now, now, well, I feel that my search is at an end. You are the one I've been searching for. Oh, Mr. Monet. But Mr. Boynton's gone now. You don't have to talk like that to me. Oh, I don't think of Mr. Boynton. I think of you, Miss Brooks. Ma chère, Miss Brooks. I have something personal to talk to you about. But right now I'm late for an appointment with Mr. Conklin. Can you meet me someplace? Right after school. How about the Casbah? I mean... <laughs> I mean the park. Fine, fine. Of course, I have several papers to mark. And besides, I have to formulate my plans for tomorrow's class. And... There are some other routine affairs I must take care of. Oh, I realize this. How long will it all take? Well, school doesn't let out until three, and it's a 20-minute walk to the park. Would 3.10 be all right? <laughs> I, I will come right to the point, Miss Brooks. I have met you here in the park to make you what you call proposal. 
proposal? But, Mr. Monet, you hardly know me. Oh, I know you well enough for this, Miss Wolfe. After talking to many, many women, Mrs. Conklin, little Mrs. Conklin, about Harriet. Mm. I mean, I know you are the ideal woman for me. Oh, this is very flattering, Mr. Monet, but marriage is a serious step. Marriage? I cannot marriage with you. I am already married. With you? <laughs> well, with my wife, Helene. She arrives here next week. For you, I have another proposal. Any other proposal is only good for a sock in the nozzle. <laughs> no, no, you, you do not understand. I want you to accept a position as tutor for my three children. Three children? Oh, Mrs. Davis will love this. Well, they need very badly coaching in English before they can enter school here. And, well, what do you say, Miss Wolf? Will you help us out? Mr. Monet, may I ask you one question? Of course. What is it? Among your children, is there a tall, dark one in the crowd? <laughs> and now, once again, here is our Miss Brooks. Well, I promised Mr. Monet I'd help him out with his children, but I must admit I was a little let down when I found out he wasn't a bachelor. And I said as much to Mrs. Davis. Yes, Connie, it's a shame that such a darling man is already married. But he served his purpose as far as upsetting Mr. Boynton goes. What do you mean, Connie? Well, the day after we had lunch together, Mr. Boynton was so concerned about the situation, guess what he did? What? He put a brand new lock on his frog's cage. <laughs> Next week, tune in to another Our Miss Brooks show brought to you by Palmolive Soap, Your Beauty Hope, and Luster Cream Shampoo for soft, glamorous, dream girl hair. Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden, is produced by Larry Burns, written and directed by Al Lewis, with music by Wilbur Hatch. Mr. Boynton is played by Jeff Chandler, Mr. Conklin by Gail Gordon. Others in tonight's cast were Jane Morgan, Dick Crenna, Gloria McMillan, and Gerald Moore. <laughs> For mystery liberally sprinkled with laughs, listen to Mr. and Mrs. North, the exciting, fun-packed adventures of an amateur detective and his beautiful wife. Tune in Tuesday evenings over most of these same stations. And be with us again next week at the same time for another comedy episode of Our Miss Brooks. You want to be free to work where you choose, start your own business, own your own home, invest your money as you see fit, then the American way of life is best for you. We have the highest standard of living. Since 1910, we have practically doubled our annual income, yet our working time has been cut by about 18 hours a week. Let's start to realize how fortunate we are. Let's work a little harder on our jobs and at being better citizens. Let's remember that the better we produce, the better we live. Stay tuned now for Lumen Abner. Bob Lamont speaking with the CBS for Columbia Broadcasting System. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's Escape, followed by Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. Thanks to Paul Stringer and Joel Schoenwell for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.